In a moment, we are going to take our offering, and that is for the people that call Redeemer Fellowship their home. And I want to just share a moment about the offering before we pray for it and before we pass the baskets. There are multiple ways in which you can participate in the act of worship through offering your tithes and offerings through the local church. We um, pass the baskets around. We also have an offering box in the back. The online giving um, process is uh, just outstanding. Um, it's one of those things where you could set it up at the beginning of each month if um, you know that maybe it's a struggle for you to say, uh, should I be um, you know, getting all the things I want first or should I be contributing to the house of the Lord first? Set that up online. It's a way to kind of um, begin to give you accountability for that. I want to encourage those that do call this church their home. Be as prayerful about this part of the service as any other part of the service. Um, I, I know that I pray for the worship team because I love the way it feels to engage Jesus through a time of worshiping the Lord in song. How precious was that when the music just dropped out and this place was just filled with voices. Um, our God doesn't compartmentalize each of the aspects of worship. So when we worship him through generous giving, um, he sees that as just as beautiful as well. So I encourage you to please be prayerful about that. If you're visiting with us, you can just take this little sheet. It's perforated, fills off. I'm glad that worked. Usually that stuff doesn't work for me. Um, you could drop that off, and we would love to follow up with you. If you notice, almost all the questions are related to community groups because that's the primary way. We're not real program heavy here. It's a way to plug in here at the church. I'm going to ask if the ushers would come forward to receive the offering. I'm going to read our sermon text, pray, and then we'll dive into God's word. Um, our text this morning comes from 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. It says, That which we have seen from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that life was made manifest. And we have seen it, and we testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you that we can have complete joy through a person, the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that we would see you as you are. And when we see you rightly, our hearts rejoice in you. May this place be filled with the joy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Empower the preaching of your word. May it stick to the hearts of your saints. And may we leave here with a deeper love and infatuation for our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you don't have a Bible, um, there are Bibles in the seats in front of you. It'll also be projected up behind me. We're going to be starting the book of 1 John. So you can turn to 1 John chapter 1. And uh, this morning is going to be the beginning of a new study entitled A Guide to the Christian Life. 
that will take us up through the middle of January. After a three-week topical series on what some of our core foundations were as a church and what we believe are just core foundations of biblical Christianity, our goal here is to start to go into some deeper aspects of developing Christian maturity into our lives. So in each message, and kind of fitting with the title of the series, and it'll be fitting with the title of each message, it's going to be focused on a practical aspect of going deeper with Jesus and developing critical pieces of the Christian life. It's going to be a pretty theologically driven series with a lot of practical application that relates directly towards our sanctification, which is just a fancy word that means our growing in Jesus and in keeping with John's purpose in writing the book. The series is going to be preached with community group questions in mind. We're really hoping to see, we want to see everybody in the body be a part of a community group, and we're hoping to try to show you that now it's easier than ever to be a part of one. So as you see these questions that are in your bulletin, they're also up on Facebook. There's also a new page for them up on the website. Um, if you go through those questions and you listen to the message, you're prepared to come and be able to bring discussion and be able to take and apply God's word to our life. So each message is going to kind of work off of this idea of how do we get the body to understand and corporately live out a basic aspect of the Christian life. And the series is going to go as follows. We've got a little map to the guide to the Christian life here. It's going to be starting out with a guide to knowing Jesus, a guide to starting over, a guide to walking in complete forgiveness, a guide to maturity, a guide to loving Jesus more than this world, a guide to being who you truly are, a guide to loving one another, a guide to testing the spirits, a guide to the heart of God, a guide to overcoming, and a guide to walking in assurance. Um, It's going to be a pretty fun study. I'm looking forward to it. A little bit of necessary background stuff. I say this every time I do an introductory sermon to a book. If you like background stuff and you're one of those three people, you'll enjoy this. If you're not one of those three people, just give me the next four or five minutes and then it'll start to get into some more practical stuff. So just to give you a little bit of background so that you understand the author and why he wrote this letter, as we do, it kind of helps you to understand the way that John frames the book that he writes. This book or letter or epistle, you'll hear me use those terms interchangeably throughout the series, was written by one of the disciples of Jesus, one of the apostles named John, who was a brother of James. He was a son to a man named Zebedee, and he was one of the first disciples that was called to follow Jesus. John also wrote what's known as the Gospel of John, which means the account of the good news concerning Jesus as he walked the earth. He also wrote two other letters, 2 John and 3 John, and he wrote the book that we know as Revelation, the last book in the Bible shortly before his death. John was believed to be the youngest of the original apostles, so he is uniquely qualified to write this letter. You see, when John first started following Jesus, he was known as one of the sons of thunder. And he earned that nickname by just being bullheaded, by being strong in his mind. He was incredibly excited, angry, I would argue racist. Um, And he was so bent on what he perceived to be truth that he was completely lacking in love in his presentation of that 
truth. Uh, there was an instance in the Gospel of Luke that you see where John is trying to go through the region of Samaria to go and preach the gospel, mind you, something that we think of as something that accompanies being a, a loving person, a loving act, and they didn't want to let him pass through. They said, you're going to have to go around. So he asked Jesus, can you give me a special dispensation of fire so that I can roast the entire Samaritan village and just toast these people and consume them? Um, years later, that guy is known as the apostle of love. Jim, I couldn't help but think of, like, you got to know me right when I was saved my first year or two of being a pastor, so that's probably what it looked like to watch a guy kind of over the last 20 years, right? I hope. Hopefully I'm turning into an apostle of love and not somebody that wants to light people on fire as much anymore. But um, now many years later, this son of thunder now the apostle of love, the one whom Jesus loved, he refers to himself as, he, he writes more about love than any other New Testament author. And that, that ministers something to me, something fierce, man. That something as simple as the background of the book, you could see the power of a testimony of the way the gospel works in changing a man's life and taking him from being angry and impulsive to being just saturated in love by the way the gospel began to change this man's heart. Um, most people believe that this letter um, it was written during a time when he was pastoring a church in a town called Ephesus, and he was fighting against a theological belief that began to pervade into the church known as Gnosticism. Uh, to sum up Gnosticism in a nutshell, it comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge, and they believe that salvation came from affirming and understanding the right knowledge and to be able to follow light and you follow the progression of light and light would lend you to trend upwards away from the material things of this earth into more spiritual things. Um, so it really came down to having a right understanding of your own inner goodness and this divine spark that they believe indwelled us rather than repenting of sin and believing in the new life and spiritual rebirth that we need through Christ. And interestingly enough, we don't hold Gnosticism as a major belief system in our society anymore, but the principle still exists. Anytime you hear spirituality that makes it sound like God cares very much about what we're doing in a spiritual way, he cares about the churchy things that we do, he cares about the religious acts that you do, but it is divorced from the way that we live our day-to-day -day life that's no different than the Gnosticism. There might be a different name for it now. We might just call it lazy Christianity or whatever you want to call it. But if we hear a teaching that says, God looks down at those times where you're reading your Bible and you're praying, but when I go to work or what I'm watching on TV or the way I spend my money, these things don't matter. These are mine. And you start to create this big dichotomy between the two. That is the same thing as Gnosticism. So John is going to take a lot of detail to be able to look at Christian doctrine, Christian belief, and Christian practice and be able to show the difference between Christianity and man-made religion and show that an encounter with the person of Jesus Christ is supposed to impact every single aspect of our lives. And that's what we're hoping to do with our series, A Guide to the Christian Life. And it starts where any good guide to the Christian life should, a guide to encountering Jesus. So as we get into our text, any guide 
to the Christian life has to begin with a tangible encounter of the person of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 1, that which we have heard from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked upon, what we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This life was made manifest. So he starts off the letter basically the same way that he does his gospel account. And for that matter, the same way that the Bible starts out by putting Jesus right at the beginning of it. As you look at verse 1, that which, we, that which was from the beginning. So the Bible starts off all the way back in Genesis, driving home this simple point. In the beginning, God. Very similarly to how he starts here, that this is first and foremost a God story. The Bible's not about you. It doesn't start off with, in the beginning, you should. In the beginning, I. In the beginning, all you people. It starts off with, in the beginning, God. It is about God. It is a God story. And he starts off like that to show that only in him does anything else begin to make sense? And then he starts off his gospel the same way, that Jesus is God, and in the beginning, Jesus. And then he starts off his letter in the same way, in the beginning, Jesus. This is a Jesus story, and that's the only right set of lenses that can make this story really come into view the way that you're supposed to be able to see it. It's not about you. If you're going to hear one thing as we start to look at a Christian, a guide to the Christian life, make sure that you get this. A guide to the Christian life is not about you and what you need to do to be a better you. Let me repeat that. A guide to the Christian life is not about you and what you need to do to be a better you. And that's necessary to say because that's the way the Christian life is often taught. Hey, you want to be a better Christian? Here's what you need to do and what you should follow so that you could be. And it puts you directly at the center of it. The Christian life is about a person. The Christian life is a roadmap to the person of Jesus Christ. It starts with him. It comes from him, and every single road turns you back towards him. And ironically, when we read through that set of lenses, you start to see ourselves as a better result. So when you go to the book looking for you, you're not going to accurately see you. When you go to the book looking for Jesus, not only do you get to see Jesus, but you get to see you more accurately as a result. When you go to the book looking for yourself, you start out with a skewed view of you. And then you read the story with a skewed view of you. And then we go to the story, but you actually start to say, maybe this isn't about me, but this is about God. You begin to see God more accurately. And then God gives you the lenses to see yourselves more accurately. So John wants to pass along something about Jesus, as he says from the very first clause here in verse 1, that's existed from the beginning, but perhaps more practical, more important, is he wants to pass along an encounter with Jesus. So, or maybe said even better is he's passing along a real encounter with Jesus. And he takes great pains to explain that in verse 1. Look at this. We're passing along what we've heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we've touched with our hands concerning this word of life. So he's making this point because 
He wants people to be able to see that he has seen and spent time with the real Jesus. He's not passing along just hearsay. He's passing along a genuine relationship that he really encountered with this real person of Jesus. Something that was so tangible that he was able to touch him. That's why we take communion each week, folks, because what we're trying to explain to people is this is so tangible that it's like you can drink of his blood, you can eat of his flesh, and we can still experience Jesus in this real, very real way. And that's what he's trying to say to them. He's saying, look, I'm not telling you about this religious figure that I read about somewhere. This isn't like reading the works of Confucius or something. He's saying, I met this Jesus. I touched him. I walked around with him. We did life together. So John's passing along a very real encounter with Jesus. And that's important because people were starting to define Jesus in really weird ways. So he uses language to show hey, this isn't something that's open for interpretation. This is the real Jesus. This isn't your invented version of Jesus. Sometimes people like to say, you know, I see Jesus as being like this or that. Or to me, Jesus is more like this. Jesus doesn't need me or you or anybody else to define Jesus. And why would we want to define Jesus anyway? Look, if I could define Jesus, and I have a very vivid imagination, but the best that I'd be able to do would be able to put together the sum total of my imagination. And that would be the highest Jesus that I could possibly be able to create. I want to know Jesus because he's something that's so far beyond something so far greater than the sum total of what I could ever think or hope or imagine. Encountering an imaginary sky Jesus someday does absolutely nothing for me. That doesn't give me hope in this life. That doesn't give me hope in the next. When I'm going through an intense season of trial, being able to think, oh, there's a sky Jesus out there who might care for me doesn't do anything for me, but encountering the real Jesus is so exhilarating that it's worth giving your whole life to. It's like the scripture that we read from the book of Philippians, that it's willing to look at everything and count it as rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Or as Paul went on to say later in Philippians, that forgetting what lies behind and looking forward to what lies ahead, that I, I look at nothing. I consider it as all loss compared to knowing Christ Jesus, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and a share in his sufferings and be conformed to the image of his death. You can only say that about the real Jesus. It doesn't work with a made-up Jesus. That's why a guide to the Christian life has to begin with a meaningful encounter with a very real Jesus. And John's passing along his testimony about how he encountered a real relationship with the real Jesus. Folks, I want to just kind of stop moving the text forward and just ask you the most practical question anybody can ever ask you in this life. That's not hyperbole. It's the most important and practical question anybody could ever ask you in this life. Have you had a real encounter with the real Jesus resulting in a real relationship with the person of Jesus? As you sit here today, like search your souls and ask yourself that question. And if the answer is no, don't leave here saying that's a question I needed to answer someday. We're not guaranteed someday. 
Ask your souls, have I had a real encounter with this real person of Jesus? As John just describes, that which we've seen, that which we've touched, that which we've heard, that which we've experienced. Can you say, this is the Jesus that I've come here to worship. I'm coming here together with all of these people because I know that Jesus and I want to be with other people who know that Jesus. I'm not asking you if you found religion. I'm not asking you if you found a better set of principles to live by. I'm not asking you if you needed to clean up some things in your life so maybe a little bit of church might help you out. I'm asking if you've had a real encounter with a person, the person of Jesus. Friends, I I, I don't know how stronger to state it than to say, like, I know that there's going to be people here that leave today that say, I don't know the answer to that question, and that's okay. It's not okay. It's not okay. Ask your hearts. Know that you can leave assured that you have a relationship with that person of Jesus. People should not hear us talk about Jesus and say, wow, that person is really religious. They should hear us talk about Jesus and say, wow, they talk about him like they know him. They talk about him like they were just hanging out with him. They talk about him as if he was right there and he's a their very real friend because we do, brothers and sisters. John was not writing about Jesus as merely a guide to the beginning of the Christian life either. And that's something where... I think is just critical in this whole new gospel-centric movement that's been coming out to point out that an encounter with Jesus is at the heart of everything the Christian life is all about. It's not the entry point of your faith. An encounter with Jesus is not the doorway that you walk through and then you're like, thanks, Jesus. That was cool getting me into the door. Now that I'm there, I got it from here. No, the Christian life is nothing more than an ongoing, continual encounter with the person of Jesus. We need ongoing encounters of Jesus. You don't just account, encounter him to pray a prayer at the moment of salvation. You encounter him over and over and over, and by continually encountering Jesus, that's what it means to grow as a Christian, a little Christ, a follower of this Jesus. And I would like to challenge anyone who's ever read a verse like this and misses the practical relevance of it, thinking, you know, I encountered Jesus a long time ago. I want to ask you a question, and I'd really like you to just search your heart's on this, when is the last time that you had a real experiential encounter with Jesus Christ? That's something where if you have to think too long about it, ask God, why? Why do I have to really go back to the recesses of my mind? If you can't give an answer more than, you know, 20 years ago, he saved me out of the pit of addiction. That's awesome that you encountered Jesus like that 20 years ago. Praise God. Or uh, 15 years ago, he stopped me from looking at pornography. Or I prayed a prayer at a youth camp 10 years ago. If that was your last encounter with Jesus, you're running on fumes, brothers and sisters. You're going too long without a tangible encounter with Jesus in a real experiential way, like John is talking about in these verses. When is the last time you experienced Jesus? Because we might not get the luxury of walking, touching, being able to experience in in the exact way that John talked about here, but we do get something better. 
He indwells us with his very self. He even said that. He said, I'm leaving because I'm sending a helper. And that helper is going to teach you, convict you, and train you in all things of righteousness because he's going to be living inside of you. As Christians, we need to be having real encounters with Jesus, passing along real-life encounters with Jesus. So the guide to the Christian life begins with a real encounter with a real Jesus. But in verse 2, we see that a guide to the Christian life is all about the new life we have in Jesus. Look at verse 2. It says, And this life was made manifest, and we've seen it, and we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So John uses this language so that you could see just how tangible this encounter with Jesus was. He's saying it was made manifested to us. We've seen it. We testify to it. We proclaim it. Let me go back to this word manifest. You know, have you ever been in a, um, a time where you're praying for the church service? I th- I, I've prayed this goofy prayer before, and you say, um, Holy Spirit, we invite you to this church service as if the Holy Ghost needs an invitation here. Or Jesus, where two or more are gathered, you're there in our midst. We've got at least seven, so we invite you to our party. Um, Jesus showed up before you did, so we don't need to invite him. What we are asking, though, is manifest. We want to see your manifest presence. Your spirit's here. Let us experience your spirit. Jesus, you're here in our midst. Let us experience you if you're really in our midst. We know that you are in the preaching of your word. Jesus, I want, to exp- I want my heart to start to glow and light up when I sit under the preaching of your word. I know that that's what I'm looking for when I preach the word. I don't want to come up here and just be able to give you dead words from a text. I want my heart to be glowing. I want them to come out of the mouth of a man who's been set on fire by the Spirit of God to preach the Son of God so that you might experience a relationship with the Father of God. And that you can leave here and say, something happened. There was a divine transaction this morning, and God met me in this place. That's what the word manifest means. Jesus is present. We didn't invite him. But sometimes we get the glorious taste of him manifesting himself in our presence, and we get the taste and see and experience his goodness. Is it just me, or do you just live for those times? Man, those times are an anchor to the soul. And John's saying that they saw that life in Jesus and they ran to it in verse 2. Look, I didn't have much of an understanding of theology or the Bible or anything like that when I met Jesus. But one thing was really clear to me. I looked down the corridors of my life and I saw death. And then the Holy Spirit awakened my heart and I no longer saw death, but I saw life. Why not run to that? I would be foolish not to run. I Do you know, you could do a case study on me on how seriously I pursued death before Christ. I loved my sin more than you're going to meet many people that love their sin. I was addicted to my sin and infatuated with my sin. And I would just, I would premeditate ways that I could just run towards that which hedonistically made me feel good. Now that I have found Christ, why would I not run with him with the same ferocity that I ran towards my sin? Amen? So his heart's awakened. And he's saying that Jesus came in and he started to just light the place up and he started to manifest life and he started to offer eternal life and they ran to it and new life resulted. 
And his life backed up this claim. John went from being an angry young racist to being the apostle of love. Have you experienced new life in Jesus? Jesus is not an ornament to add to your life. Jesus Christ is so much more than that. It's not the old life, but let's take a little bit of religion and add it to it. And let's call that religion Jesus so that we can name our higher power. Jesus is the guide to the whole new life. He's not just an adaptation of your old life, folks. Jesus is a new life all together. And I want to ask you a question I'd really encourage you to think through. What are the current evidences of new life being manifested in and through your life? Really think about that. I mean, just because you've had them in the past doesn't mean to not stop and just take stock. If I had a a plant in my yard and I knew that the thing was alive 20 years ago, but the thing is just getting deader and deader and browner and browner each week, I wouldn't just look at that and be like, 20 years ago, that was an awesome plant. I mean, it might not have had life since the 80s, but I could point to times when it had life in the 80s. That's almost as good. No, it's not. It's a dead plant sitting in your yard. So how is Jesus manifesting fresh life and fresh fruit in you right now? And one of the ways that we see it manifest is in verse 3. It says, that which we've seen and we heard and we proclaim to you also so that you might have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So he's saying that a guide to the Christian life leads us to deepening fellowship with Jesus, resulting in a deepening fellowship with the people of Jesus. John is saying that this encounter with Jesus, that he found such an amazing new life that he's eager to proclaim it to you because he wants you to experience that new and amazing life. It's crazy. Like every time... A new diet comes out. You see that for like three straight months, every single one of your friends posts about how that thing changes their entire life on Facebook. And then the next new diet comes out. And each one is just stupider than the previous. When we all know that eat vegetables and lean protein. Like it's not rocket science, folks. Um, But we find some new way to say it because we think we found some kind of life in that, right? Why else would we be posting it? And then we want to share that common experience with others. Oh, you only eat nothing but barley nine times a day? Me too. Let's share about this life that we found. And people are so eager to share that. That's all he's saying in verse 3. He's saying, I found life. Why would I keep that to myself? I want the people that I know and love to know the same love. So if you would share the ferocity of the ketogenic diet with somebody this week, at least share Jesus with somebody this week, please. Um, It's just crazy the things that we'll share because we think that they have life attached. And you know what, if you found life in those things, I don't mean to make fun. I I do actually, but um, he wants them to have that encounter with Jesus though. He wants them to understand that we can have a new life in Christ And he's not just writing to give you a ticket to the party. He's coming, he's asking you to come to the party as a direct invitation to the guest of honor. This isn't come to my church. This is so much cooler than that. 
Evangelism, when it's reduced to come to my church, is not really evangelism. It's just inviting people to a facility. It, it, this is not come to my church. It's come meet my daddy. We're not selling church to people. We're offering a relationship with the true and living God. We're offering something that is of first, impo- uh, first importance to everything. It has a vertical component, but it also has this horizontal component that makes us then have deepening fellowship with the people of God. As we start to see that life being made manifest in them, we say, you're, you're experiencing that new life in Jesus. I'm experiencing that new life in Jesus. And then fellowship isn't something forced or weird or contrived. It's us coming together saying, man, what would I rather be talking about than the new life I found in Jesus with the people of Jesus who have also found new life in Jesus? That's Christian fellowship, brothers and sisters. And then evangelism is no longer, well, I better go get out there and knock on doors and tell people the four spiritual laws. It's, man, I found life. I want to tell you about this life. There's nothing greater than this life. Come with me and experience this life. That's so much more fun than telling people good Christians evangelize, bad Christians don't. Um, Lastly, a guide to the Christian life should be a roadmap to joy from Jesus, verse 4. He says, we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Authentic Christianity should result in joy. Brothers and sisters, I want to just put it bluntly to you. There is no such thing as joyless Christianity. You're talking about two terms that are diametrically opposed to one another. Joy and Christianity, they're synonymous because it's the Spirit's fruit that produces it within you. The Spirit works within you, produces the fruit of joy, and it's been his normative way of working all along. I'm not saying we don't go through trials or we don't go through hard seasons, but I'm saying that there is no such thing as joyless Christianity. When I was writing out what I wanted to see when I started planting a church eight years ago, I kept coming back to a foundational principle, preach joy, preach joy, don't take it for granted that people just understand joy. Don't take it for granted that people are walking in joy. Preach joy. And, and hopefully I have. I, I, I pray that I've served you well by preaching joy because biblically joy is such a bigger subject than we give it credit for. It's one of the defining marks that the Spirit is at work in the life of a Christian. And it's one of the most defining marks that the Spirit is at work in the life of a church. I mean, if you walk into a church and all it is is, <sighs> that's not Christianity. Man, church should be a celebration. Church should be a party. Church should be a place of mutually rejoicing in the Savior who's given us life together. How could you not have joy in that? If your Christianity is not producing joy, then something is wrong. Something's gone askew somewhere along. I don't say that to condemn you. I say that to say like, hey, if you were driving along on a flat tire and you hear stop and check the stinking tire. So if you're driving along with a Christianity that's joyless, you are the car driving along with a flat tire. Stop and jack that thing up and at least put a donut on that thing because we all know that donuts give you joy. (laughs) 
that's my new diet. <laughs> I'm going to share about that on Facebook. Um, so the joy just builds upon all of the previous truths, guys, as I, as I prepare to wrap up and ask you a couple questions. The joy comes from having a true encounter with Jesus. Joy comes from being given new life in Jesus. Joy comes from being in regular fellowship with Jesus. Joy is made manifest when we have fellowship with the people of Jesus, which results in joy then coming from and exuding from Jesus. What is cooler than that? I used to be so into apologetics. And man, I could just take any argument and say, uh, I'm going to break down rational, presuppositional, classical apologetics and be able to show you how to win every argument with the right counter argument. Now I just go right where John goes and I cut out all of that wasted time and I ask two questions. How's your joy and where's your love? That's all he's doing here. We found love. We found joy. And they came from Jesus. A couple of reflection questions as I close. Have you had a real life, tangible encounter with Jesus the way that John describes it in verse 1? If not, we want to invite you to call upon him this morning and you can know him today. How long has it been since you've had an encounter with Jesus? If it was since Reagan was in office, it's been too long. I'm just going to throw that out there. Um, how long has it been since you've had a real encounter with Jesus? Do you seek to have regular encounters with the person of Jesus and put yourself in environments where you may do so? How long has it been since you've been just truly wrecked afresh by an encounter with Jesus? I'm talking like you may have even been moved to tears. I say it every once in a while. I don't trust people that don't cry because, man, when the Holy Spirit brings conviction, I don't know how you couldn't just say, like, God, I'm such a wretch. You're so good. Who am I that you're mindful of me or the son of man that you would consider my ways? But, Lord, you have, and you love me, and you never get sick of me. And here I am with the same failure, coming back and knocking on the door and saying, Lord, it's me again. I screwed up again. Same failure that it was last time. And here you are just graciously saying, child, come. When's the last time you were wrecked afresh in his presence by that kind of good news? Has your new life in Jesus been made manifest? What evidences are there that that new life is taking place? How's your fellowship with Jesus? And a way that you can answer that question honestly, do you know what John did here in this text? If you wanted a one-word synopsis to wrap up those first four verses, all he's saying is follow Jesus the way that I did. That's, it almost sounds arrogant, right? I remember a pastor in my pastoral theology class saying, how many of you would go stand before a congregation and say, follow me in the way that I follow Christ? And all of us, presuming that we were humble, did not raise our hands. And he said, well, then you're going to have a lot of time, hard time with the Apostle Paul, because he said it a couple of times. And here in John, he, he said it too. Um, he said, all he's saying is, I experienced Jesus in this way. Come experience Jesus in the way that I've experienced Jesus. Would you feel comfortable inviting somebody to have fellowship with Jesus and following the footsteps of the pattern in which you have had fellowship with Jesus? And the last question is, is your fellowship with Jesus making your joy 
complete. I'm going to ask if Pastor Tim would come and, and close us in a time of communion while I pray. Father, thank you that we have so much joy offered to us at the hand of our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And now as we move on to, uh, as John said, that which we've seen and touched and experienced, may we experience that through the breaking of bread and fellowship in Jesus' name.